quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Speaker McCarthy facing trouble uniting his party on a key vote tonight. Here we go again. The lead starts right now. Republican holdout setting the tone, this time from the establishment wing, balking over finalizing the very rules that McCarthy conceded last week to hardliners to become the House Speaker. Is this constant drama the new normal? Plus, President Biden's upcoming meeting with the President of Mexico after visiting the border, where, critics say, the true scope of the humanitarian crisis was hidden from his view. And former Apache pilot Prince Harry dropping bombs, accusing his stepmother of leaking stories to help her own image, accusing British tabloids of radicalizing their readers with lies in order to hurt his family. What does the royal family have to say about all this? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start in our politics lead with the first test of newly elected Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. In just a few hours, the House is going to vote on its new rules package. This will include one of the biggest concessions McCarthy made to the hardline rebels in order to get the gavel. That one-person motion to vacate rule, this means just one member of Congress, can now force a vote to remove McCarthy as Speaker. McCarthy, of course, also made other significant concessions, including allowing more Freedom Caucus members onto key committees that will decide what legislation will actually be voted upon, caps on spending, including defense hawks complain, the Pentagon budget, creating a special subcommittee to probe alleged weaponization of the Justice Department and the FBI, though Republicans who might be targets of law enforcement investigations might be able to serve on that subcommittee. And another promise that Democrats are already calling a red line for them, pairing a vote on raising the debt ceiling with spending cuts. Today, some Republicans are voicing concerns about the deal McCarthy made to secure the top house job. I'm not the speaker, so it it should concern Kevin more than it concerns me. And I don't think that it's going to change the way we do business around here. Do you think everybody agrees with that? Probably not. I understand the concerns on on the right about addressing those issues. But at the same time, we've got to compete with China. We've got to compete with Russia. We're going to start with CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill now, where Congress is gearing up to vote on this rules package, which, given that every Democrat seems poised to vote against it, is far from guaranteed to pass. After an ugly start to the 118th Congress and the longest speaker's race since before the Civil War, House Republicans trying to prove they can govern, brushing aside their differences for now. Think you guys looked good last week? No. <laughs> but we're past it. We're going to look good from here on out. First order of business, organizing the House with a set of new rules, including a major concession Kevin McCarthy had to make, allowing just one member to call for a vote to oust him from the speakership. Does that concern you that some members may take advantage of that? Uh, I'm not the speaker, so it it should concern Kevin more than it concerns me. The math, a challenge for McCarthy. With 222 GOP members, more than four defections could tank any party-line bill. 
And already, at least one plans to vote against the rules package, citing McCarthy's deal that could threaten his hold on the speakership. If we can't get this right, it's going to be it's going to be a nightmare after nightmare. But the new House Majority Leader Steve Scalise defended the new rules. There's a lot of concern that could get instability in the speakership. What do you say to those folks who are concerned about that? Well, that's the way Congress worked for over 200 years. Nancy Pelosi is the one who changed it. We're changing it back to what it used to be and then ultimately opening up the process. Yet in 2015, that threat pushed Republican John Boehner from the speakership. Later, Nancy Pelosi made it harder to seek such a vote. Now McCarthy forced to allow just one member to put his speakership to the test. How confident are you that you will have this job for a full two-year term? A thousand percent. But when asked about the deal cutting today, McCarthy would not weigh in. What do you say to folks who are concerned about the concessions that you cut, particularly on vacating the chair? To win the speakership, McCarthy cut other side deals with the far right, causing concern in the ranks. We don't know what deals were made, and that's something that we should be transparent about. Among them, capping domestic spending at 2022 levels, something that could cut defense programs as well. I understand the concerns on, on the right about addressing those issues. But at the same time, we got to compete with China. we got to compete with Russia. Another concession ensuring any increase to the national debt also cuts spending, raising the prospects of a huge fight with Democrats and an unprecedented debt default. Well, it, it concerns me. All as the GOP is still picking up the pieces following Friday night's melee. When it appeared McCarthy's speaker's bid was stalled, one of his allies, Mike Rogers, lunged at McCarthy's foe, Matt Gates. Mr. Rogers, can you explain what happened on the House floor on Friday night with you and Matt no Gates? Comment. No comment. Now, House Republican leaders are confident that this rules package will pass tonight, despite some concerns in the ranks. And assuming it is approved, then the House will move to adopt their first bill, of a Republican bill, to pull back on funding authorized by the Democrats' law to the Inflation Reduction Act to bolster tax enforcement, provide more money to the IRS. They expect that to pass as well. And, Jake, the, the Republicans also naming new chairman to help drive the agenda going forward, just naming Jason Smith as the head of the Ways and Means Committee as a very powerful committee in Congress, a tax writing committee that Smith, a Missouri Republican, will now lead. All right, Monty Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much for joining us now. Newly sworn in Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York. I can't call you Congressman-elect anymore. Uh, thanks for being here. So you supported Kevin McCarthy in his bid for speaker from the beginning, all 15 ballots. Yep. Uh, McCarthy has had to make a lot of concessions in order to flip the, the hardliners. Are you worried about any of the concessions? No. I mean, a lot of these rules uh, were already negotiated over the last two months. The only thing that changed was the motion to vacate from five to one. Uh, which I was willing to concede on long ago. I mean, at the end of the day, as Steve Scalise pointed out, that was the rule for over 100 years in Congress. So the, the person who changed that was Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Uh, so reverting it back to the one, and based on the fact that it took 15 votes, clearly they could pull together five people if they wanted to. Well, that's the only, you're right in the sense that that's the only change that showed up in the, in the, the rules that you're going to vote yeah. on. But there are all these other side deals that we don't know exactly what they are. They haven't been presented. We've heard some of them. Uh, for, for instance, uh, tying any vote on raising the debt ceiling to uh, some accompanying spending cuts. I asked Congressman Chip Roy, one of the hardliners uh, who eventually flipped to support McCarthy, about this concession. I want you to take a listen. Mm -hmm. If McCarthy fails to uh, offer a, 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 a debt ceiling bill that has offsetting uh, spending cuts... If he offers what the Democrats in the Senate want, which is a clean bill, 
would you vote to vacate the speakership? Because it will now be able to be one person making that motion to look, vacate the speaker. Look, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to play the what if games on how we're going to use the tools of the House to make sure that we enforce uh, the terms of the agreement. But we will use the tools of the House to enforce the terms of the agreement. Does that concern you at all? Look, we have a conference of 222 members, inclusive of 18 districts, such as myself, that came from uh, districts Joe Biden won in 2020. So all of us collectively uh, are going to have to work together. And it's not just the opinions of the Freedom Caucus uh, or those that were holding out on uh, Kevin McCarthy for speaker that are going to matter. It's all of us. And so my objective, uh, regardless of the rules, regardless of, uh, you know, what agreements there were, uh, is to make sure that we can govern as a conference, because that is what the American people expected. They wanted us to be a check and balance on the Biden agenda. And the only way to do that is to collectively work together. So as I will uh, listen to and and hear out my colleagues uh, from the Freedom Caucus, uh, they're going to have to listen to and hear me out as well. Now, with respect to spending, let's be very clear. Uh, Spending from both parties uh, has been excessive for a very long time. And there is no question that we have to rein in spending. Uh, And anybody who disagrees with that is honestly being dishonest here because we cannot sustain the level of debt that we have incurred in recent years. So you have to to rein it in. uh, Look, the United States government spends considerably more than it it takes in, and that's been going on for decades. I think the issue is uh, there's going to be a a face-off here, right? I mean, Democrats don't want to have a a debt ceiling increase bill that's tied to spending cuts. And if there is the kind of showdown that we saw in 2011 uh, and the U.S. credit is downgraded, I mean, that could cost billions of dollars and hurt Americans' retirement accounts and really have staggering consequences. And I don't know that of the 222 members of the House that, that you're part of their conference, right. I don't know that everybody understands that or cares. Look, there is no question we have to pay our debts. That is an obligation sure. that we have incurred. But the White House and the Senate must also understand that we are the majority in the House. And so there is going to have to be a coming together. There is going to have to be a bipartisan negotiation. And it's not going to just be up to the Senate to say, oh, no, we just want a clean uh, debt ceiling bill. There, we have to get spending under control. So from my vantage point, you have to work in good faith. You have to work with your colleagues. There's 222 of us. You need 218 to pass a bill. So to my colleagues in the Freedom Caucus, they're not going to be able to just dismiss voices like mine uh, and, and advance the ball forward. But the Senate and the White House are going to have to work with us, too. And, sure. that, and, and so I'm not concerned about the fact that there's going to be some hardball here. Because, you know what, sometimes that's the only way you actually get the result that is sure. desired. And, and you have to rein in spending somehow. So and, and Chip Roy people are said, going to have to give and take. And Chip Roy said on my show yesterday, he said, let's start the process now so there right. isn't this brinksmanship right. later in the year. But, I mean, welcome to Washington. Listen, I, I, it, You'll see how way, that works. It's not just Washington. You go back to Albany, you know, the budget deadline, March 31st, they'd blow right by it for years and years and years. You have, to, you have to force the hand here. And I think everybody needs to come to the table sooner than later 
so that we can get serious about this. Just a quick yes or no. Is the, is the rules vote, is it going to pass, do you think? Yes. It is, absolutely. Congressman Mike Lawler, good to see you, and good to see you in person. Thanks for being here. Coming up next, you. a court filing today marking a key point in one of the many investigations facing Donald Trump. Could indictments possibly be next? What attorneys for Donald Trump are going to be looking out for? Plus, new information coming this hour from police in Newport News, Virginia, after a six-year-old boy shot his elementary school teacher. Stay with us. More in our politics lead now. The special grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, that's the Atlanta area, that has been investigating efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election results in that state, has been dissolved and is preparing its final report. That report could include recommendations for Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis to pursue indictments. Let's bring in CNN's Nick Valencia and Ellie Honig. Uh, Nick, walk us through exactly what happens now that the grand jury has been dissolved. Their work is done, but this process still has a long way potentially to play out. The special purpose grand jury has uh, this whole time been told that they needed to uh, create a final report and based on those findings, suggest recommendations to Fonnie Willis. That's the district attorney here in Fulton County. It's now in her hands and what she wants to do and whether or not she's going to take this to a separate grand jury to try to pursue criminal indictments in her investigation into alleged election interference in the 2020 election. And look, just because that this special purpose grand jury did not have the power to indict didn't mean that they did not have power. They certainly did have the authority to subpoena, and that resulted in a number of high-profile individuals in the orbit of the former president coming down here to Fulton County to testify. Names like Rudy Giuliani, the former attorney for the former president, South Carolina Senator uh, Lindsey Graham, and the governor here in Georgia, Brian Kemp, They all had to testify, just to name a few. Many of these people I mentioned did not want to show up here and were ordered to, effectively coming down here kicking and screaming. And while this investigation started with the now infamous phone call shortly after the 2020 election between the former president and secretary of state here in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, during which Trump pressured Raffensperger to find votes, it really broadened out in scope over the many months that the special purpose grand jury was hearing testimony uh, to include things like a fake elector scheme during which Trump allies tried to subvert the electoral college to try to certify him as the rightful winner in Georgia. They were also interested in what Rudy Giuliani said in his statements, both virtually and in person to Georgia lawmakers. In fact, he was said to be a target of this investigation. They were even and also, I should say, looking at uh, potential unauthorized access to voting machines in Coffee County. Bottom line, uh, Jake here is Fannie Willis is going to have to decide what she does next, and we don't know the timeline of uh, when that will happen, Jake. Ellie, one of the big questions going forward is whether the special grand jury's report will be even released to the public. Is that something that's normally done? And given that so much of this grand jury's activity so far ha- has been in the public eye, would you expect it, in this case at, at least, to be released? No, Jake, it's highly unusual for a grand jury report to be released to the public at this point. And I think any responsible, ethical, focused prosecutor has to object to that. First of all, this is a grand jury proceeding by rule. It's supposed to happen confidentially, except for in extraordinary circumstances. Second of all, you don't want to show your playbook to the other side as a prosecutor. If this report comes out, the whole world's going to know who their witnesses are, what they've said, what investigative tax they're saying. And finally, Jake, as a prosecutor, you have an obligation to protect the reputation, the rights of people who are being investigated, people who are being accused, but they've not yet been indicted and don't have a chance to defend themselves. You do have to take that into account and to put out a report with all these negative findings, but not an indictment at this point, I think, would harm those interests. Right. And it's a lower standard to be investigated or even to be indicted than it is to be found guilty. You say the special grand jury's report will be a bit of a legal fiction. What, What does that mean? 
Yeah, so the report itself, I'm sure I'll give the benefit of the doubt, will be based on fact. But the notion that the grand jury is some sort of independent, freestanding finder of fact is a legal fiction. This is a one-sided proceeding. I've spent plenty of time in grand juries. The only people allowed in that room are the grand jurors, the witnesses, and prosecutors. It's supposed to be a one-sided proceeding. It is one-sided. There's no defense presence. There's no defense argument. There's no cross-examination. So we need to keep in mind whatever comes out in this report, if it comes out, whatever comes out of this grand jury, this is a one-sided proceeding. It's not yet been subject to meaningful challenge or testing. And do you expect indictments in the case? And if so, does any one stand out based on what we know about the individual possible suspects or uh, defendants' involvement in efforts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia specifically? Well, I think just going by what we've seen here in the public, there's a substantial foundation of evidence for Fonnie Willis to seek an indictment. Um, She's going to have a very difficult decision to make. Of course, this would be a groundbreaking charge. It would be a first ever charge against a former president. But it's also important to keep in mind, there will be real obstacles if she chooses to seek an indictment, because you're talking about a local county level elected DA bringing a charge that arguably touches on the presidency. So if there's an indictment, I would look for Donald Trump's team to run right up to the appellate courts and the federal courts and saying, she can't do this. You have to throw this out. Only DOJ can bring this kind of indictment. All right. To be continued, Nick Valencia, Ali Honig, thanks to both of you. Turning to Ukraine now. See what the Orthodox Christmas looked like in a region where Russia has called for a temporary ceasefire, despite efforts that we see there in Ukraine. CNN is on the ground. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, quote, one of the bloodiest places on the front line. That is how Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky describes Bakhmut. That's an eastern Ukrainian town at the epicenter of months of heavy fighting. Russia claims its forces bolstered by the notorious Wagner Group mercenaries just to control of a village just a few miles away from that key town. CNN's Ben Wiedemann takes us now to the front lines where Ukrainians marked a somber Orthodox Christmas in an attempt at normalcy almost a year into Putin's brutal, unprovoked war. There was no peace, no silence in Bakhmut on the eve of Orthodox Christmas. The unilateral Russian ceasefire never materialized. The guns didn't go silent. At one of the city's shelters, residents gather around a table laid with food and tokens of the holiday. Tatyana, a volunteer, tries to raise spirits. We wish you good health, peace, prosperity and all the best, she tells them. She knows it's important to put on a brave face. Even though it's raining and snowing outside, I'm smiling, says Tatyana. I wish people a Merry Christmas. I try to show them it comes from my soul. She did manage to bring a smile to the only child in the shelter, nine-year-old Volodymyr. And his wish on this day? I want this war to end and all my friends to return, he says. For the adults, the gift under this tree is electricity to charge mobile phones and a wireless router connected to a satellite link-up, allowing for a tenuous connection to loved ones. To reassure them, however they can, that they're still alive, if not well. And here there's warmth in a city where public utilities were knocked out months ago. Yet it's hard to feel the holiday spirit, says Andri. It's so sad, sad, sad day. 
As the day progresses, snow begins to fall and the shelling continues. Christmas Eve dinner is a subdued affair in this basement, home, for now, to a few of the doctors still left in Bakhmut. God bless us with strength, patience, and endurance is Dr. Elena Molchanova's toast. But here, strength has its limits. I feel pain, she says, because I can't be with my family. I can't sit at the same table with my mother and daughter. Christmas morning and no let-up in the shelling. For months, Russian forces have tried to take this city, but so far have failed. But in the process, according to one local official, more than 60% of Bakhmut has been destroyed. At the Church of All Saints, priests hold mass in the relative safety of the crypt. Candles provide the only light and warmth in this, the darkest of times. We lost audio from Ben uh, Wiedemann in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Our thanks to him for that report. It's one of the uh, uh, many perils uh, of, of reporting abroad in war zones. Let's bring in Congressman Adam Smith of Washington State, until recently the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, now the Democratic ranking member. Congressman Smith, uh, we, we've heard Republicans on your committee talk about more oversight on Ukraine aid. Uh, the latest spending bill includes $6 million for oversight and inspections. Do you think more oversight is needed? Well, I think that's one of the great myths of this discussion. There has always been oversight. Uh, people have talked about it and the need for it, but it's been there, and we've seen the results. I mean, the, the, the weapons and support that's gone to Ukraine has obviously been being put to good use. That's why the Ukrainians have been as successful as they have been. So when people talk about oversight, oversight's great. We already have it, but then there are a lot of people out there talking about oversight who just are using it as an excuse to try to advance the argument to cut off Ukraine. There's really no evidence right now that there hasn't been adequate oversight uh, and that the Ukrainians haven't made very good use of the resources that we've sent them. Uh, Your colleague, the new chairman of the committee, Congressman Mike Rogers, uh, he's going to be his first introduction to the country in many ways, um, was losing his temper on the floor of the House, uh, having to be restrained um, from getting into a physical confrontation with Congressman Matt Gates on the House floor uh, Friday night, we're showing the images right now, uh, of Chairman Rogers uh, being held back. Um, tell us about this guy, because that, uh, <laughs> that seemed a little much. Well, I mean, a couple things about that. First of all, if you actually look at the video, what Mike was doing is he was, he was sort of getting into Matt Gates's face and he was pointing a finger at him. There was no point in that where it appeared that he was going to physically strike Matt Gates. And the only physical confrontation came from the member who grabbed him by the face to pull him back. So, you know, obviously Mike was, was pretty fired up and he was in his face, but I don't think there was any evidence that he was going to, you know, physically strike Matt Gates. I mean, as we all know, it was a very difficult week. And we on the Armed Services Committee, we're, we're a bipartisan, bicameral committee. We, we get our work done. Um, and these sorts of sort of partisan theatrics that Matt Gates and so many others engaged in day after day, ballot after ballot, definitely strain the nerves of those Republican members who are just sort of looking to get the work done and do our job. No doubt about that. Well, reportedly, Chairman Rogers said to Gates, you know, I will finish you. And he, he later apologized. I mean, yeah. so it wasn't as though... 
he was faultless in this confrontation. Oh, no, no, I'm not saying he was faultless. I just, I think it's, 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 it's a very, it's a specific charge to claim that somebody was going to physically attack somebody. Um, and, and I don't think that was happening. I have no doubt that there were a lot of threats thrown around. Um, but it didn't look to me like Mike had any intention of, of physically contacting Matt Gates. So you called the speaker battle uh, the last week uh, a, quote, clown show. You tweeted, quote, House Republicans just completely caved again to Trump and his insurrectionist mega extremists. Bad for Congress, bad for the country. We don't know what's going to happen, but Congressman Gates, who is one of the you know, chief instigators of the showdown, he did make it clear that he wants to chair a subcommittee on your committee, the Armed Services uh, Committee. Um, what was your reaction when you heard that? Well, two things about that. First of all, you know, to, to, to be optimistic, I, I've worked with Matt Gates before, uh, many times. You know, I've been chairman while he's been on the committee. We've worked together. He has supported uh, the bill that we've passed out of committee many times. Um, so I think we can, in fact, work together. It was a tense moment of differing opinions, but I think we can get there. Now, the concern is... You know, if they're taken hostages, that's what they essentially did, is they took um, Kevin McCarthy hostage last week. You know, we've see, I've seen Donald Trump take the armed services, the, the defense bill hostage two years ago, or three years ago now, I guess it was. So we had to override his veto over an issue totally unrelated to armed services. So we do have to worry about whether or not that's going to happen. But I think going forward, we have to try and work together as we have, you know, for, gosh, the last four years uh, and see where it goes. So... The speaker's battle was worrisome. Um, we got to put it behind us and try to work together going forward. Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates wrote a joint opinion piece in The Washington Post titled Time is Not on Ukraine's Side. They write, quote, eight years separated Russia's seizure of Crimea and its invasion nearly a year ago. Count on Putin to be patient to achieve his destiny. Under current circumstances, any negotiated ceasefire would leave Russian forces in a strong position to resume their invasion whenever they're ready. That is unacceptable, unquote. Do you think the, the Biden administration agrees this is a make or break moment? Well, I think, you know, it is certainly true that we need to give Ukraine support right now. Now, Ukraine has outperformed expectations every step of the way. And I don't recall exactly what, what Bob Gates or Condoleezza Rice had to say, but a lot of people were saying that Kiev was going to fall in a matter of weeks when the war started. A lot of people said there was no way that you know, they could recapture territory that the Russians had captured. They've done that. So I think it is absolutely urgent that we support Ukraine to make it clear to Putin that he cannot succeed. But I give Ukraine a better shot at, at pushing the Russians back further, taking back more territory, and getting to that point. Yes, the, the urgency is absolutely there. We have to support Ukraine now. I have more optimism about their ability to ultimately protect their country um, and be successful in stopping Putin's invasion. All right, Democratic Congressman Adam Smith from the great Washington state. Thank you so much, sir. Good to see you. Thank you, Jay. Up next to Virginia, what police said just now about a six-year-old boy, the gun he fired at school, and the teacher he shot. Stay with us. Our money lead now and health lead. They intersect today, as they do for many families. Some 7,000 nurses in New York City are on strike today, walking picket lines instead of the hallways at two private hospitals. Although this is happening in New York, the nurses' complaints resonate at virtually every hospital in the United States. Let's bring in CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz. Vanessa, what do the nurses want? Well, the nurses have been out here since early this morning, hundreds of them lining the streets of New York and across four other locations here in New York City. This is after Mount Sinai and Montefiore Hospital failed to reach agreements with their unions. What the nurses want is safe, safe staffing. That is the ratio of patients 
to nurses. Many nurses out here saying that sometimes the ratio is one nurse to 20 patients. They want to get that number down and they want the hospitals to agree to a better ratio. I want to bring in right now one of the nurses at this hospital who is out here striking right now, Danny Fuentes. Tell me, why are you out here today? We're here for safer conditions for our patients. We want those safe staffing ratios. We want a fair contract that holds the hospital accountable to those ratios. What does it mean when you don't have those safe ratios? That it means the hospital can continue to do what they've been doing to us for four years where, for example, I work in the surgical ICU. A normal patient load for me should be one to two patients. But more often than not, we have three or four patients and that's just not safe. It's not safe for the patients? Not at all. Thank you so much, Danny. Now, Mount Sinai Hospital has not gotten back to the negotiating table with the union. However, Montefiore Hospital has been at the negotiating table with the union again since this afternoon. But what nurses are experiencing here is really happening across the country. And when you have bad ratios of patients to nurses, it breeds a really unwelcoming area and an unwelcoming job for other nurses that may be wanting to enter the position. And that, in turn, breeds labor shortages. It's a vicious cycle, Jake. But the nurses out here say that they would rather be inside this hospital. But what they are doing and what they are fighting for out here, they believe will only make the care better for their patients in the future, Jake. Vanessa, nurses are the lifeblood of any hospital. How are patients being affected? Yeah, well, some of the hospitals, uh, Mount Sinai and Montefiore, are already transferring NICU babies out of this hospital and into others. They're diverting ambulances. They're diverting patients. And they're also canceling elective surgeries. They're trying to make do with what they have. They're bringing in traveling nurses to try to help with staffing. But this is day one of the strike. There's a lot of stress outside and inside the hospital. No sense of when this will all wrap up, Jake. All right, Vanessa, you gave it to New York City. Thank you so much much for that in our national lead now. New information just in on the case of the six-year-old boy in Newport News, Virginia, who somehow got a gun and then shot a teacher. The incident happened Friday in Richneck Elementary, about an hour southeast of Richmond, Virginia. The teacher, Abby Zwerner, was hit by a single bullet. CNN's Brian Todd is in Newport News with the latest on what we're hearing from police. A search for answers tonight after an unthinkable crime Friday in Newport News, Virginia. Police say a first grader shot a teacher on purpose after an altercation. Mrs. Zwerner was providing class instruction. The six-year-old child uh, displayed a firearm, pointed it it at her and fired one round. There was no physical uh, struggle or fight. She suffered a gunshot wound, um, but she was still able to get all of her students out of that classroom. Police tell CNN they have been in touch with the parents. We determined that the firearm was in the residence where they lived, and the child had obtained that firearm, placed it in his backpack, and brought it to school. The teacher, Abby Zwerner, made it from the classroom to the main office despite a bleeding chest wound, according to a grandparent who happened to be there and administered CPR to the teacher. She came into the office saying that she had been shot. Um, she had blood on her hand and blood on her shirt, and she said that she had been shot. Um, she, I don't know if she fainted, but she had fallen to the floor. Here's what one eight-year-old experienced in another classroom. We all stayed quiet. Two people were crying, I will, I will help them. And when the cops came, we were marching to the gym, and we were all safe. 
A SWAT team secured the school. No students hurt. But I can tell you that the individuals responsible will be held accountable. I can promise that. The teacher upgraded to stable condition. The suspect taken into custody. We need to keep the guns out of the hands of our young people. These are the things that happen when we have access to weapons. The police chief, Steve Drew, has just told us that the child in question who fired the shot is being treated at a local medical facility. When we asked the chief if the parents would be charged in the case, the chief kind of dodged that question, said they need to get more information from the investigation, talk to the detectives, talk to the Child Protective Services people, and to the Commonwealth's attorney before determining whether the parents will be charged. Jake? All right, Brian Todd in Newport News, Virginia. Thank you so much for that report. Next, we're going to go across the pond. The tone of the British press today after Prince Harry's bombshell revelations about the royal family. Stay with us. In our world lead, Buckingham Palace has yet to respond to any of Prince Harry's bombshell claims about his family and its apparent dysfunction. The Duke of Sussex has given interview after interview ahead of tomorrow's release of his new memoir, Spare. Here's CNN's Max Foster with more on the fallout of Prince Harry's personal disclosures. I love my father. I love my brother. I love my family. What was different... With the release of his bombshell expose, Spare, Prince Harry has said he never intended to hurt anyone in the royal family. He says he wants reconciliation and accountability. Do you think you have any responsibility in the breakdown of the relationship? I'm, I'm without question, I'm sure. But what people don't know is the efforts that I've gone to to resolve this privately. There is... But in interviews and on the page, the prince reveals family rivalries, private conversations, personal misgivings, with consequences as yet unknown. The palace has repeatedly reasserted its silence. One revelation, that Camilla, the Queen Consort, leaked stories in a campaign to be queen. With a family built on hierarchy, and with her on the way to being Queen Consort, there was going to be people or bodies left in the street because of that. Then there was the family's distrust of Meghan. He's changed. She must be a witch. Prince William and Kate didn't get on with Meghan from the get-go, he says. And some of the things that my brother and sister-in-law, some of the way that they were acting or behaving, definitely felt to me as though, unfortunately, that stereotyping was causing a bit of a barrier. Harry says he doesn't speak to his brother or father anymore. He was denied a seat on the plane to Scotland with them when Queen Elizabeth died. So has he burnt bridges completely? Well, they've shown absolutely no willingness to reconcile up until this point. And I'm not sure how honesty is burning bridges. You know, silence only allows the abuser to abuse, right? So I don't know how staying silent is ever going to make things better. Having already spoken to ABC, CBS and ITV, Harry's media round continues on Tuesday with an appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. What would Diana, his mother, have made of the situation? I think she'd be sad. I think she'd be looking at, looking at it long term to know that there are certain things that we need to go through to be able to heal the relationship. I think she would be heartbroken that it's ended up where it's ended up. 
I did get a copy of the book today, Jake. We've been through it. Uh, we don't think there are any major new revelations, but there is that Stephen Colbert interview to go. So the publicity isn't over yet. Uh, these are on sale as of tomorrow around the world. So, Max, as mentioned in your piece, Prince Harry is accusing the Queen Consort, Camilla, of leaking stories to the press to improve her own standings in the public eye. Now, I see that that, that accusation is not being received well by many of Camilla's friends in the British press who are attacking Harry. But in a way, doesn't that kind of prove his point? Uh, I mean, it's certainly true to say that Camilla has a very good relationship with the media, but I think a lot of people would say that's because the other members of the family don't have good relationships always with the media. Um, she is quite well liked. I think, um, you know, that. So the idea was that there was a meeting between William and Camilla and Camilla leaked the details of that meeting to the media. As I understand it, and this is all with the palace not really going on the record with anything at the moment, uh, the private secretary to Camilla mentioned it at an event and eventually leaked out that way. The private secretary resigned as a result. So as is often the case with these stories, they're quite complex. But the overriding message from Harry is that there was a relationship between the palace, members of the family and the tabloid media, and it was quite destructive. Well, speaking of that, Prince Harry is very critical of the predatory behavior of the British tabloids, in particular in terms of the death of his mother, uh, Princess Diana. Is there any self-reflection at all happening among some of these tabloid journalists in the UK? Well, I think the most compelling part, particularly of Anson's interview, was certainly that part where, you know, he's describing seeing his mother in photos and photographers around her in that tunnel. I mean, I think everyone's conceded that the media had a role to play there. Does the media have a role now in destroying the royal family, destroying members of the royal family like Meghan and Harry? I think that's um, up for debate. It's so contentious the relationship between the Sussexes and the tabloids. There's no love lost. I don't think the tabloids are going to respond in any way to what they're hearing from Harry. But I think Harry's view is he wants to bring them down. Uh, We'll wait to see whether or not he can. Well, I doubt he'll be able to, but I think he's trying to make a point, but I hear what you're saying. Mary, Max Foster in in London, thank you so much, as always. And you can see Anderson Cooper's interview with Prince Harry tonight at 8 o'clock Eastern on AC360 right here on CNN. Any moment now, President Biden is going to arrive at Mexico's National Palace. What do we expect when he meets with the Mexican president? And also, we'll talk about the criticism Biden is receiving over his visit to the U.S. side of the border. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tiber. This hour, the husband of a missing Massachusetts woman has been charged with misleading investigators after, they claim, he spent hundreds of dollars on cleaning supplies the day after his wife went missing. We're learning more about this case, including what police just found in their basement. Plus, a college art professor says she lost her job for showing a 14th century painting of the Prophet Muhammad, the renewed debate over academic freedom. And Leading this hour, President Biden in Mexico City following his controversial visit to the southern U.S. border. Biden is in Mexico for the North American Leaders Summit, where the issues of migration, border security, and drug trafficking will be front and center. Let's get right to CNN's MJ Lee in Mexico City for us. MJ, in moments, President Biden is going to meet with Mexican President Lopez Obrador as the White House rolls out this new approach, they say, to migration policy. What is President Biden hoping to accomplish tonight? 
Well, Jake, that bilateral meeting will take place behind us at the National Palace. And this is, remember, the first time that a U.S. president has visited Mexico going back to 2014. That, of course, would have been President Obama. And while things were incredibly tense, as you know, uh, between the U.S. and Mexico relations during the Trump years, it's not as though there hasn't been moments of friction uh, under President Biden's watch as well. So we can certainly expect that the two leaders will want to highlight areas of potential cooperation. Uh, and then, of course, immigration is expected to be a top issue of discussion. And this comes at a moment when we have seen, particularly over the last week, that President Biden really needs the cooperation of uh, partners like Mexico as he tries to get a handle on the situation of migrants at the U.S. southern border. You know, when the administration announced its expansion, essentially, of Title 42 last week, it included an agreement from Mexico to accept tens of thousands of migrants who are being turned away at the U.S. border back into Mexico. So that is going to be, uh, again, a very important topic of discussion. Uh, and Jake Sullivan, importantly, told reporters this morning, don't expect some new plans or new announcements on the migration front uh, from this bilateral meeting. But the two countries are really just going to need to take some time to figure out whether that initial agreement is working. And MJ, there are a lot of critics of President Biden's trip to the border uh, Sunday, including the Border Patrol Union, many Republican officials, the governor of Texas. Have White House officials responded to any of the criticisms, including that he didn't meet with any migrants while there? Yeah, you know, it was really notable that uh, the president, of course, has come under intense pressure for months and months to physically go down to the U.S. southern border himself and see with his very own eyes the situation that is unfolding there. And he, of course, did spend a lot of time with uh, border officials, local leaders, community leaders. And then he visited this migrant aid center. Uh, but it seemed just like a notable omission that he didn't really get to spend any time with migrants either at the center or even just along the motor. Route, uh, the scenes that we have been seeing uh, reported by some of our colleagues over the last few weeks, those were scenes that the president didn't seem to see. An administration official told me yesterday this was all purely coincidental. Uh, Jake Sullivan also said that he was really focused on seeing and meeting with groups who are providing essential services uh, to these migrants. Uh, of course, we are seeing this White House trying to balance uh, seeming stronger on the border, but also uh, showing a humanitarian and humane approach in how they are dealing with this crisis at the border, Jake. All right, I'm Jay Lee traveling with President Biden in Mexico City. Thanks so much. Now back in Texas, CNN's Rosa Flores reports from the border where migrants tell her they're crossing the border in search of a better life, a message President Biden did not get to hear firsthand. What do you want to be? Maestra. Oh, she wants to be a teacher. The Tovar sisters have been living in this makeshift migrant camp outside an El Paso church for a week. Oh, she wants to be Rapunzel. Playing with toys is a luxury they haven't enjoyed since they left Venezuela four months ago, according to their dad. He says that he decided to come to the United States because there's no education really for his daughters. The Tobars are among the hundreds of migrants who call the streets of El Paso home, arguably the epicenter of the current border crisis. A scene President Joe Biden skipped during his first visit to the border. A short three-hour stop in El Paso that prompted criticism by the governor of Texas. This is nothing but for show. And protest by local immigration and human rights advocates. You are not alone. Like Fernando Garcia. 
You think this is a photo op for the president? I think this is it. I mean, three hours of that feeling of disappointment has been transformed into outrage. Outrage over policies like the Trump-era pandemic public health rule known as Title 42, says Garcia. That rule allows border agents to swiftly expel some migrants to Mexico. Biden said this about the policy. I don't like Title 42. Just days ago, he expanded the rule to Venezuelans, Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Haitians. I think the only ones happy with the expansion of Title 42 are the Trumpists, conservative Republicans. I mean, we're expecting something different from him. Something more humane, like the campaign promises he made, says Garcia. During his visit, Biden stopped by a port of entry, a migrant respite center, and by the border wall, but didn't appear to see or meet any migrants. Apparently, the closest the president got to seeing the migration flow was in pictures shown to him by the mayor of El Paso. Which were very impactful, so he could see what our city and what challenges we've been going through. Seven. Seven. The Tobar sisters' favorite toy, a tablet to learn numbers and the English alphabet. G. G. Their dream, learning to speak English. What would you tell the president? He says that his message to the president is that not all migrants are bad. He's a father, he's here with his children, and they're just here for a better life. Now, the Tobar sisters are still here. I've seen them around. One of them was actually just helping a nonprofit organization distribute goodie bags for the other migrants. But back to President Biden, the White House defending the president's visit here to El Paso, saying that the president was really just focusing on meeting with groups that service migrants. One of those individuals is Sister Norma Pimentel from Catholic Charities in the Rio Grande Valley. And Jake, she tells me that she invited President Biden back to the border, to the Rio Grande Valley, and also to continue dialogue with him about the migrant issue. Now, she says that President Biden hasn't agreed to go back to the border, but he did agree to continue talks with Pimentel. All right, Rosa Flores for us live at the border in El Paso. Thanks so much. Now to Brazil. A soon-to-be-sworn-in lawmaker in Brazil just asked the Brazilian foreign ministry to extradite the former president, Jair Bolsonaro, back to Brazil from Florida, where he currently is, after Bolsonaro's supporters attempted to overthrow the government in widespread protests on Sunday and today. Nearly 1,500 Brazilians have been arrested after rioters stormed all three branches of government, fueled by Bolsonaro's familiar echoes, lies about voter fraud and his refusal to concede his loss to his more liberal rival, Lula da Silva, who was inaugurated on January 1st. As CNN's Issa Suarez reports for us now, the angry crowd ransacked the presidential palace, destroyed priceless art, and even tried to set the carpet in Congress on fire. A stunning attack on Brazil's seat of power. As thousands of supporters of former far-right President Jair Bolsonaro broke through security cordons in Brasilia, roaming presidential building corridors, vandalizing Congress, scenes reminiscent of the 2021 U.S. Capitol riot. One week earlier, the scenes were of democratic triumph, as Bolsonaro's left-wing rival, Lula da Silva, was inaugurated as the new Brazilian president following a tight election result. Bolsonaro never explicitly conceded, and neither did his most ardent followers. This, this is my hero. I'm at his home, our home, our home, 
a Bolsonaro supporter says from inside the presidential palace. Protesters dressed in the colors of the Brazilian flag, now a symbol of Bolsonaro's far-right movement, unfurled banners from the congressional building rooftop, demanding the result of Brazil's most fraught election in a generation be overturned. More than a thousand arrests were made after security forces used tear gas and stun grenades to regain control of the congressional building, the Supreme Court and presidential palace. But by the time they did, the damage had already been done. The president's chief of communication showed destruction inside his own office. It's unbelievable what was done in the palace. Look at the state of the rooms, equipment, computers. Look at this. World leaders condemned the attack as an assault on democracy. Brazil's new president pinned the blame on his predecessor, accusing him of encouraging rioters through social media from Florida. He promised no stone will be left unturned, vowing to find those responsible. We will find out the financiers and they will pay with the force of the law for this irresponsible gesture, this anti-democratic gesture of vandals and fascists. Bolsonaro denounced the actions of his supporters from the US, where he travelled after the election. Most of his supporters have now started to disperse their camps in the Brazilian capital, after the armed forces were given 24 hours to remove them. In their absence, destruction and lingering fears of what's next for a country that remains bitterly divided. And Jake, for much of the day, authorities have been really surveying the damage of the three branches of power right behind me in Brasilia. We've heard in the last 40 minutes or so from a senator, Rodolfo Rodriguez, who said they found five unexploded grenades inside three inside the Supreme Court, two inside Congress. The same senator, Jake, also said that rioters were carrying axes as well as knives. And in the last hour or so, we have heard from the wife of former President Jair Bolsonaro, who said his uh, husband had been taken to a hospital in the, U the United States complaining of abdominal discomfort. This was related to a knife attack, a knife injury that he suffered back in 2018 during a, a campaign rally here in, the uh, here in Brazil. We've also heard from the Brazilian ambassador to the US, Jake, in the last half an hour, who said his name is Nestor Foster Jr. We've been told he has been removed from office. Now, we have been told that is not related to the violent attacks we've seen in Brasilia, but it's important to point out that he was a Bolsonaro appointee. In the meanwhile, Lula da Silva is inside Planalto, has been inside Planalto, really trying to not just survey the damage, but showing Brazilians up and down the country that those people that brought so much destruction to Brasilia, that he will bring them to Jasha. The perpetrators will be brought to justice. Of course, the main job uniting a very divided country, Jake. Yeah, we're familiar with that. Issa Suarez in Brazil, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, Speaker Kevin McCarthy just moments away facing his first real test since he became the Speaker and took the gavel. Then Buffalo, uh, Buffalo's uh, Damar Hamlin uh, released from the hospital and back in Buffalo just a week after he nearly died on the field. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the next test of the speakership for Kevin McCarthy will come in just over an hour as House Republicans try to pass their rules package for the new Congress, the 118th. Republican leaders are racing to alleviate any concerns from more establishment members, hoping to 
avoid another embarrassing defeat after concessions were made to hardliners to finally put an end to last week's chaotic 15-ballot vote for Speaker CNN's Melanie Zanona joins us now live from Capitol Hill. Melanie, what are Republican leaders saying about how the voting for the rules package will fare? GOP leaders are expressing confidence that they will have the votes for this rule package, but they are leaving nothing to chance, Jake, because remember, they can only afford to lose four votes on any given bill. And there are members who have been out there expressing some concerns over what's in the package and what they don't know what's in the package. Uh, So we have seen GOP leadership really trying to scramble behind the scenes, alleviate some of the concerns of members like Nancy Mace and Tony Gonzalez. And we have seen at least some of this effort work because Nancy Mace's office does tell us that she will be a yes on the rules package. And part of the pitch from GOP leaders has been trying to really downplay the impact of these concessions, particularly when it comes to restoring the motion to vacate the speaker's chair. That is the ability for any single member to call for a vote ousting the sitting speaker. Take a listen to what some McCarthy allies told Armanu Raju earlier today. I'm not the speaker, so you know, it, it should concern Kevin more than it concerns me. And I don't think that it's going to change the way we do business around here. Do you think everybody agrees with that? Probably not. Contrary. What about the one person motion to vacate? There's a lot of concern that could get instability in the speakership. What do you say to those folks who are concerned about that? Well, that's the way Congress worked for over 200 years. Nancy Pelosi is the one who changed it. We're changing it back to what it used to be. Now, there are also concerns for members about what deals were made that aren't spelled out in this rule package. There's still a lot we don't know. So Republicans are really still digesting and coming to terms the scope of everything that Kevin McCarthy agreed to, Jake. Yeah, well, it's, they've been promising to be a, a transparent House of Representatives, I'm sure they're going to release that list of concessions any moment now. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Melanie, House Republicans want to set up a new select subcommittee to investigate the alleged politicization of the Justice Department and the FBI. That's setting up a showdown with the Biden administration. Where does that stand? This was another key concession that hardliners won. Uh, They've wanted a committee to investigate the DOJ and FBI specifically, and they fought for language that will now empower them to specifically go after ongoing criminal probes, including those looking into former President Donald Trump. So now the question is, who is McCarthy going to appoint? He gets to appoint 13 members, five of which will be in consultation with the Democratic leader. But we're looking out to see who those appointments are including whether he will tap someone like Scott Perry, whose phone was seized in connection with the federal investigation into the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. So I think once we learn about the makeup of that committee, we'll get a better sense of what direction that probe plans to take. Jake. All right, Melanie Zanone on Capitol Hill. Thanks. Let's talk about this with my panel. And Heather, this issue about who's going to serve on this committee, this special subcommittee, looking into alleged politi- uh, political use of the FBI and the Justice Department, who's on the committee is a pretty big part of it. Uh, because uh, it may be that Congressman Scott Perry, Republican of Pennsylvania, is under criminal investigation. We do not know. They don't talk about it, but they've been seeking his phone. He certainly played an outsized role in the attempt to uh, overturn the election. Take a listen to what Perry had to say when he was asked about serving on this select subcommittee. Well, why should I be limited? Why should anybody be limited just because someone has made an accusation? Everybody in America is innocent until proven otherwise. And I would say this, the American people are really, really tired of the persecution and the instruments of federal power being used against them. Comment, thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) There's obviously at the very least the appearance of a huge potential conflict of interest here, right? And it's not just Scott Perry. There are others like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, other people who were under federal investigation or have been, you know, have ties to some of these investigations potentially who could serve on this committee. 
I mean, the thing to know about the select committee is the language authorizing it is very broad. So you don't have to be a member of the Judiciary Committee to serve on this committee, even though it's housed under the Judiciary Committee. The members get access to the same uh, intelligence that the Intel Committee gets, which is just unheard of on the Hill. And the budget is rumored to be the size or larger of the January 6th budget. So we're talking about a multi-million dollar select panel. You know, it's just, it's unheard of. And I believe, uh, Neem Lake, I believe it says that they can look into ongoing investigations, which, I mean, that sounds like a recipe for disaster. I don't care which party is controlling it to be able to look into an ongoing investigation. Politicians shouldn't have any role in that. Right. And, you know, and who knows, you know, what the purview will end up being, who ends up being on this committee, if it's somebody like uh, Scott Perry, who seems to in some ways uh, be compromised. The budget does suggest, I mean, sort of a far-wielding uh, power. Uh, so, but listen, these are some of the concessions that the, the hardliners won, that this, this Freedom Caucus, because they want to look into many, many things. They want to look into the January 6th committee. They want to look into Hunter Biden. They want to look into uh, Dr. Fauci and the withdrawal from, from Afghanistan. I mean, this was part of uh, what uh, Kevin McCarthy gave up. I think it's going to be far-reaching, and I think one of the questions is, is it essentially going to backfire on Republicans? Is it going to be too far-reaching? So Americans say, you know, what are they doing poking around on all of these issues uh, when the price of gas is such and such, or they can't uh, put food on on the table for families? And and Kevin, look, obviously, the House of Representatives has an obligation to perform oversight over the administrative branch. No question about that. The question is, usually that's done with some adult supervision, and I have concerns. Uh, I, I'm hearing concerns about the 180th yeah, Congress. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's right, though. I think Nia's point is that this is essentially, in their minds, a promise made, and it's going to be a promise kept. And, the, and the, the most, one of the most important planks in their commitment to America was this accountability and oversight. But I think the, the, the opportunity or the potential for it to be a political downside is great, because... I think most of the Americans right now, most Americans that during this midterm election, they were really focused on economic issues. They were really focused on these sort of like bottom line budgetary concerns that they had with inside their household. And so any sort of oversight that seems to go outside the, the purview of that will, you know, seem like it's out of step or it's not aligned with the concerns that they have. So look, this is clearly the politics of vengeance. And what McCarthy has now gotten himself into is a huge corrupt bargain which is the only way that he could have gotten the speakership, that he could have gotten the 218 votes. And we saw how painful that was last week. And so now what you have is essentially the next step is going to be extortion and how these committee members, whoever it is that they are, and let's call it for what it is. It's really the insurrection committee because all of those people were involved in some way, shape, or form, whether it's supporting the election denial or Scott Perry perhaps being investigated for actually taking a part in it. But it is all about getting back at the Biden administration for them investigating their efforts to actually kill democracy. I do think it's going to be a huge backfire on them because you're right, Kevin, during the midterm elections, this is what 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 Republicans promised is that they were going to focus on inflation, on the economy, on the border, on crime. And what's the first thing that they announce? Impeachment against Secretary Mayorga. I think if I'm in a if I'm in a swing seat, moderate swing seat, I worry about the factional minority inside my own parties that are driving the message on. This. Yeah, and we had on Congressman uh, Lawler earlier. He's been one of the Republican. He's one of the 18 Republicans right. who represent a district that Joe Biden won. And right. speaking, you, you talked about how we all saw what happened last last mm-hmm. week. One of the reasons that we saw it 
is because uh, Congress had not gaveled into session. And so C-SPAN's cameras were able to film everything that was going on on the floor of, this, of the people's that house. That was great. Um, it was great. I agree. <laughs> yeah. C-SPAN just a few minutes ago just tweeted, C-SPAN cameras are no longer in the House chamber. We have resumed using the feed from the House slash government operated cameras. So uh, another element of transparency that I had been hoping Republicans would would uh, be be true on to their word on uh, that we're not getting, and I, I honestly can't can't really understand it because it really engaged people mm-hmm. with what was going on. Yeah, yes, but to be fair to Republicans here, I mean Democrats do this too. They oh, nobody lock down it. the cameras. You know what I mean? Right. I, I think maybe if there was any chance of them opening it up when Mike Rogers went after Matt Gates on the House floor, that was it. They were like, we can't have these things on. Hey, can I make a case for going back to politics being boring again? Yeah. <laughs> I know, I I know guess, it made for good drama on a Friday or something. Well, uh, as a Republican, of course you would make that argument. <laughs> so uh, moderates say they feel like they need to stand up to the leadership's uh, catering to conservatives or else they're going to continue being steamrolled. I want you to listen to Congressman Tony Gonzalez a a Republican from Texas talking about his objections to the rule that they're about to vote on. I'm against the rule for the rules for a couple different reasons. One is, is the defense spend the the cut in defense. I think that's an absolutely terrible idea. But the other is the vacate the chair. I mean, I don't want to see us every two months be in lockdown. The American public are counting on house Republicans to be the, the, the one savior in this all. If we can't get this right, it's going to be, it's going to be a nightmare after nightmare. I think it's fair. It's to- going to be a nightmare after yeah, nightmare. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that's essentially uh, what we saw already over these last many days uh, with the speaker trying to to get the gavel. He caved. Uh, they are emboldened and empowered because uh, he won the gavel, but they won too. And so you're going to have showdowns, and it's going to mean something for Americans, particularly when you think about the debt uh, the debt ceiling. If that's going to be tied to cuts, yeah. is the government uh, going to have to shut and down? You just know that there's one of these House Freedom Caucus members who is dying to be the first one to. Take that one for a ride. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks to one and all. Appreciate it. Why one college art professor says a 14th century painting showing it to her students cost her her job. Stay with us. The Iranian regime keeps silencing critics by executing them. A karate champion and a volunteer who worked with children reportedly were executed over the weekend in connection with the nationwide protests, and now Iran's supreme leader is calling new rounds of anti-government protests, quote, acts of treason. CNN's Jamana Karadja takes a look now at how some Iranian parents are risking their own lives to save their children from execution. A mother's heart-wrenching final farewell for her son. The oppressor took you away from me, she cries at his grave. Now you're asleep here, she says. This is the only goodbye Mohammad Mehdi Karami's family got. No final visit, no justice. (laughs) The 21-year-old Kurdish Iranian karate champion was executed by the Islamic Republic this weekend, along with Sayyid Mohammad Husseini, a volunteer children's coach. They were convicted of killing a member of Iran's Basij paramilitary force during a protest in November. Death sentences handed down after what rights groups say are sham trials based on forced confessions extracted under torture. Karami's parents had taken the risk of speaking out in social media recordings, begging the state to spare their boy's life. (laughs) 
the ruthless republic has shown no mercy. At least four young men hanged, many others facing execution by a regime that appears to be using the death penalty to crush dissent. Among them, 19-year-old Mohammed Burghani and 22-year-old Mohammed Qabadlu, sentenced to death by this notorious judge, Abul Qasim Salavati, nicknamed the Judge of Death. On Sunday night, a crowd gathered outside the prison where Qabadlu and Burghani are being held after activists reported their execution was imminent. Scenes of sheer bravery as the crowd chant against the regime and support Qabadlu's mother, risking it all to try and save her son. Activists are urging the international community to do more than just condemn these executions, to try and save the defenseless on death row. And save their families from this unimaginable pain. And Jake, no one really knows how many protesters have been sentenced to death, more than 40 according to CNN count last month, but the real number is believed to be higher and it is continuing to rise. Just today, three more protesters have been sentenced to death and activists are warning that we will be seeing more executions in the coming days. So they are urging the international community to take urgent action, to put pressure on the regime to try and stop these executions, Jake. All right, Jamana Karaja, thank you so much for that report. Now to our national lead, an adjunct professor at Hamlin University in Minnesota says she lost her job for showing a painting that depicted the prophet Muhammad. Many modern Muslim clerics believe that visual representations of the prophet Muhammad should not be shown, but such a instruction is not explicitly stated in the Quran. Professor Erica Lopez Prater says she warned her students that she was going to show an image of a famous 14th century painting that depicted Muhammad, this in her art history class. She said any students with concerns should come to her directly after showing her class the painting, which depicts a a winged and crowned angel Gabriel pointing at the prophet Muhammad. A student complained, and the professor subsequently was not asked to return to teach next year. This has sparked debate over free speech and religious freedom. We want to Bring in right now Omid Safi. He's an Iranian-American who teaches Asian and Middle Eastern studies at Duke University. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor Safi. So Hamlin's president in an email to students and faculty that was shared with CNN says, quote, we believe in academic freedom, but it should not and cannot be used to explain, I'm sorry, to be used to excuse away behavior that harms others, unquote. How do you see this? Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Um, you know, I think the words of the Hamlin president are um, more than a little unfortunate because it pits it as an issue of freedom of speech versus the sensitivities of Muslim students. The fact of the matter is that these kinds of images have been an important part of the Islamic tradition. They are um, a sacred icon tradition, if you want to use that word. And they have existed in both the Sunni and the Shia tradition going back almost a thousand years. So I think there's a big difference between the kind of offensive images like the ones that we saw in Charlie Hebdo and iconic devotional works of art which have been produced by Muslim artists for consumption of Muslims with the specific goal of drawing the audience closer to the prophet and closer to God. Be, and beyond that, I, I just wonder, as a, as a professor at Duke, 
how, how does it make you feel as a professor that the university would say, you can't show this, this obviously didn't happen to you, but you can't show this or you'll be fired, even though obviously the intent was not to offend, it was, it was to instruct. Well, you know, actually this semester I'm teaching a course on the life the devotion to the legacy of and the artistic tradition of the Prophet Muhammad. So starting on Wednesday, I'm going to be discussing many of these same kinds of images in my own classroom. Um, I think what the role of education should be, yes, it is to love and protect our students. It's also to expand our horizons. Many of the students probably had never been aware of the fact that these images exist, they have existed. If they would get an opportunity to go to the Met, they would see that the Metropolitan Museum of Art has 13 of these images. Two of them are on permanent display. So does the Smithsonian, so does the British Library and museums in Turkey and Iran and elsewhere. So that's an opportunity to expand their horizon. It doesn't mean that they have to agree with it, but it does mean that they deserve the opportunity to be challenged to have a reasoned discussion about the role that these kinds of images have played historically um, and to make up their own mind in that context. So when did it change? When did so many Muslim clerics become convinced that showing any image, even a a referential one of the Prophet Muhammad, um, was uh, something that, that should prompt outrage? That's the really interesting part of this story for me. In general, I tend to be interested in how is it that some practices and some interpretations, which used to be quite commonplace, come to be marginalized later on. And we find that sometimes to be the case with mystical, with spiritual, with aesthetically powerful presentations of Islam, which used to be absolutely mainstream. And this was true in the Sunni and the Shia tradition Um, For example, many of the kinds of images that um, we tend to show in art history courses, in some religion courses, they tended to come from the Ottoman Empire, which was the seat of the Sunni Caliphate. This is about as central to the center of authority and power as it gets in Islam. It really is um, in the last 100, 150 years or so, where interpretations that we could call Salafi or Wahhabi tend to rise in prominence, and they want to erase what has come before. Those of us who are educators, I think what we try to do is to point out why is it that these images have been produced, and they usually point um, out two services. Uh, One, they depict the scene of the Prophet Muhammad's ascension to see God face-to-face, the Mi'raj. That's the pivotal spiritual experience of Islam. And then secondly, they show Muhammad in the company of other prophets, which points out to the universality of the Islamic tradition. Mm -hmm. I hope that as all of these discussions go on, that we get a chance to go back to those two fundamental points of what is it that this iconic tradition was designed to do, to point out the way to see God face to face and the universalism, which has always been a hallmark of the Islamic tradition. All right, Professor Omid Safi, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. Coming up, new information about what was found in the basement belonging to a missing mother and her husband. Stay with us. 
have some breaking news for you now. Several classified documents from President Biden's time as vice president were found by his personal attorneys in one of his private offices in November last year. The National Archives has now referred this matter to the Justice Department for further investigation, a source tells CNN. CNN's Evan Pettis joins us now live with more on this. Evan, tell us more. Well, Jake, these do- were documents uh, the White House says that were found by the, former pres- by the current president's uh, attorneys in November as they were closing out uh, an office that the, uh, the, the former vice president, Biden, of course, uh, had set up an office uh, with the University of Pennsylvania at the Penn Biden Center here in Washington. And they were closing out these offices when they found what they say were fewer than a dozen documents that were labeled as classified. Now, a number of these documents were also subject to the Presidential Records Act. And according to the White House, uh, these were now turned over to the National Archives, which has asked the Justice Department uh, to look into it. Now, uh, we're told uh, now, Jake, that the, that the Attorney General Merrick Garland has asked uh, the U.S. Attorney in Chicago to conduct a review of these document, uh, documents, uh, which is a standard process that they would go through. This is uh, akin to the process that uh, happened after the National Archives asked the Justice Department to look into these classified materials that were recovered from Mar-a-Lago, from the former President Trump's uh, residence. So it is a process that the Justice Department recently went through, obviously, with uh, Donald Trump. Of course, the difference here is that according to the White House, uh, it was the the president's uh, legal team that reached out to NARA to turn over uh, these documents, uh, as opposed to with Trump, who fought for months and months uh, not to turn over documents that the archive said uh, needed to be turned over, Jake. How significant is that difference? Well, you know, it's a big difference because, you know, part of the reason why there was this extraordinary search, Jake, at uh, Mar-a-Lago back in August was because the former president was refusing to turn over documents uh, according to the Justice Department and uh, according to all the litigation we saw. According to the White House, the story that we're hearing from the White House right now is that, you know, they willingly turned over these documents. They're saying that it's fewer than a dozen documents that were turned over to the National Archives. And of course, the National Archives asked the Justice Department out of an abundance of caution to conduct an investigation. Now, we don't know, uh, Jake, whether this is a full-blown criminal investigation uh, of the nature that happened uh, under Donald Trump, uh, of of the Donald Trump documents, of course. Uh, Right now, what we know is that it is a review that has been conducted by the U.S. attorney in Chicago, uh, along with the FBI, is is also involved. All right, Evan Pettis, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our national lead now, authorities have arrested and charged the husband of missing Massachusetts woman Anna Walsh with misleading investigators about his wife's disappearance. Walsh, a mother of three, has been missing since New Year's Day. CNN's Bryn Gingras joins us now live. And Bryn, what did prosecutors allege during the husband's arraignment today? Yeah, Jake, they're essentially just laying out all the times they say Brian Walsh lied about his whereabouts surrounding the disappearance of his wife, Anna Walsh, around New Year's Day. Now, it's important to put in context here that Brian Walsh was actually on pre-sentencing probation for a federal fraud charge that he uh, pled guilty to from a case back in 2018. So he was always having to update authorities on his whereabouts, and the ADA says this is what he was lying about, and they pointed to a bunch of things. One of them sticks out, though, is He told investigators that he took his son out for ice cream when instead they realized he went to Home Depot. Take a listen. 
He's on surveillance at that time, purchasing about $450 worth of cleaning supplies. That would include mops, bucket, tops, um, TVEX, uh, drop cloths, uh, as well as various kinds of tape. What's more, the ADA says they also found a bloody knife and blood stains in the basement of the couple's home. In addition, two sources are telling CNN's John Miller, uh, Jake, that the Internet searches of Brian Walsh included how to dispose of a 115-pound woman's body and also questions about dismembering a body. Jake. Bryn Gingrass, thanks so much. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Right now, divers are searching for a five-year-old child swept away by floodwaters in San Miguel, California. That's about three hours south of San Francisco. Nearly 90% of the state is under flood watches, with more storms expected this week. California has gone from extreme drought to extreme flooding. As CNN's Renee Marsh reports right now in our Earth Matters series, the weather whiplash is testing the state's crisis management. The water kept getting deeper and deeper. There was so much water, it was gushing and it knocked me over. California, already pounded by a bomb cyclone last week that brought hurricane-force winds, torrential rain, flooding, and mountain snow, is now in the throes of yet another atmospheric river storm, a weather system transporting a high concentration of moisture and dumping epic amounts of heavy rain. We are into atmospheric river number five. But just last week, several counties in the state were experiencing the exact opposite, exceptional drought. Marked by the deep red on this map, it's considered the most severe. Although California's recent parade of ultra-wet storms have not completely reversed the decades-long dry spell, flood warnings have now replaced severe drought warnings in the same areas. This weather whiplash is forcing California to face the dilemma of how to manage floodwaters as the state experiences dramatic shifts from drought to downpours. Experts tell CNN part of the solution is drawing levees back to allow rivers more room to safely flood. We have to let our rivers flow differently and let the rivers flood a little more and recharge our groundwater in wet seasons. Climate scientist Peter Glick says levees have effectively protected communities in the past, but they're not designed for the climate challenges of today. He says containing floodwaters means less water is available to seep into thirsty underground aquifers, a desperately needed water source for farmers and communities for drinking water during extreme drought. Instead of thinking that we can control all floods, we have to learn to live with them. Glick says that means communities will have to get out of the way. Entire cities and towns would need to relocate. These changes are absolutely easier said than done, but they have to be done. We have to redesign flood insurance policies so that we're not rebuilding houses once they've been damaged in the same places where they're going to flood again. We have to design flood insurance policies to encourage people to move away from floodplains so that we can open up the floodplains and when we get those floods, they'll be less damaging. Well, the idea of relocating whole towns and communities to allow rivers more room to flood is challenging. Local governments would have to give up short-term economic gain tied to building and development and lose property tax revenue. And asking property owners to give up their property rights, Jake, that, too, would be a tall task. Indeed. Renee Marsh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead 
whence you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room. And more on the breaking news about then-Vice President Joe Biden's classified documents that have just emerged. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.